comes to us from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now turning with me in your New Testament reading to Matthew chapter 7. As you're turning, I just hope you hear the, the words of Jeremiah. The Lord speaks through Jeremiah saying that uh, when Israel's sin is reckoned with the end of her exile, that she will seek the Lord and He will be found. And we see that same language being reflected here in our Savior's own promise should tell us the work that our Savior has come to accomplish in bringing about the end of our sin. And misery. Our sermon text this morning will focus on verses 7 to 11, but for our broader context, we'll read chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is that log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds. But the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's go before the Lord now as we pray that He illuminate our hearts to understand this great promise. Our gracious God and Heavenly Fathers, we come uh, to Your Word this morning. We come sitting as Your uh, students and disciples seeking to be taught and instructed by You. As You have called us to ask, we pray that You would give us wisdom to understand these things, that we might cling to the promises so freely given to us through Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. I don't think there's hardly anything more cruel a parent could do to a child than if a child asks for a chocolate chip cookie to be given in its place oatmeal raisin. 
I don't know if you've ever had uh, such a disastrous thing befall you where you are at some form of party or organization and you think, ooh, chocolate chip. And then you take your bite and your mouth and your body and soul are so utterly disappointed. There is an old story by W.W. Jacobs called The Monkey's Paw, wherein a certain family receives a talisman that has claimed to grant them their deepest desire, and yet it grants it to them in the worst possible way. The family asks for the equivalent of about $10,000, and by the day's end, they receive it. Although the means by which they receive it comes at great cost because they receive it because their oldest son had been killed in an industrial accident and they received the $10,000 as his insurance settlement. How often do we imagine God to be something like this? Duplicitous in giving us something that we don't really want. One who will, if we are not careful, will give us the worst possible thing in order to trick us or harm us. This particular passage this morning in our Savior's Sermon on the Mount calls us to banish such thoughts, to turn our affections and our attentions to the One who is, in fact, most good and most kind. One who will not deceive us. One who, when He hears us, He answers us and will not answer in a way so as to double-cross us or humiliate us, but one who answers in His wisdom for our good and for His glory. This passage reminds us of the goodness of God, of a God who will not give us, as it were, an oatmeal raisin cookie. There's two items I'd like us to consider this morning. First is the matter of prayer. We'll see here in verses 7 and 8. And secondly, the promise given in verses 9 to 11. Jesus begins this particular passage, and of course this section is something on prayer. This is not something new to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has already instructed us how to pray, and now He reminds us that we should pray bringing us back to the manner of prayer. You think of the pagans in the world in Jesus' own day, the pagans in the Old Testament, even in those around us with these various practices who try to invoke all these various methods and manners to force, as it were, God's hand. We read about this over and over in the Old Testament, most notably in 1 Kings chapter 18 as Elijah stands on top of Mount Carmel opposing the prophets of Baal, where these false prophets call upon their God, going through all these ridiculous hoops, uttering all these incantations, even harming themselves and cutting themselves, hoping that their gods will hear them. What an utter and stark contrast it is as the prophets do all these damaging things and are not heard. And yet Elijah simply prays. He simply asks and the fire falls. 
Every few years, there is some type of new gimmick or new formula that hits the Christian market. Some new kind of method that guarantees success to your prayer life. I remember 15, 20 years ago, the so-called prayer of Jabez, which treats prayer in many ways as some form of baptized abracadabra. If you but utter this particular formula prayer, the Lord is bound to answer. And if he has not answered, then you just pray it again and again and again and again. How formulaic where, and might I actually say, how pagan to treat prayer as an incantation, the uttering of some form of script as being the means by which God has to answer. How foreign that is to the biblical doctrine of prayer. Prayer is personal. It is simply asking your heavenly Father. And that is what our Savior here calls upon us to do. To whom is it that we pray? We're not praying to an idol of wood or stone or silver or gold. We are not uttering Uh, some type of ritualistic formula to an impersonal force. We are calling upon our Father in heaven. Who here as a child, when they were hungry, went up to their father uh, or mother and pulled out a piece of paper and asked the same kind of incantation day in or day out, hoping that that would be the means by which they would be fed? Nobody here in their right mind does that. What do you simply do? You say, Daddy, I'm hungry. Our Savior here is drawing us back to the point in the nature of what prayer is. This is not a pagan ritual, but a personal communion with our Father in heaven. What is required of God's people but to ask? And as we ask, we are called to ask and called to persist in that asking. Not only does our Savior say to ask, He also says to seek. How many of us are tempted to treat our prayers as some form of hand grenade type of situation where we run into the throne of grace, kind of toss our prayers as some form of Hail Mary, as it were, and then run back out. It's a one and done. Again, that is not what we see here. That's what we had Luke 18 read earlier, where Jesus gives the parable teaching us about the importance of persistence in prayer. We persist not because the first time it didn't work, but because prayer is training our hearts to do something. How many of us treat prayer as a means to an end, and that end is to receive something, rather than that end being God himself? Our Savior has already pointed this out as He's called us at the end of chapter 6 towards a heavenly-mindedness to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything else is going to be tossed into the mix. All the food and water that is needed for life and for godliness, all of the clothing that we need, maybe not the clothing that we want, might not be the latest fashion or trend, but the Lord will provide all that we need. But there is, in fact, something greater than these earthbound necessities, necessary as they are. 
The goal of prayer is to treat, train us to commune with God. And so our Father puts things in our path to continually wean us off of this world and to train our hearts to, <coughs> excuse me, trust in our Father, to lean in the everlasting arms. One is reminded of Genesis where Jacob wrestles with the angel. He says, I will not let go until you bless me. And he is wounded in the process, but he is persistent. We already heard from Jeremiah 29 that great promise that the Lord gives to His people. As Israel is in the midst of their exile, punished for their sin, the Lord says that I have these great plans to bless you, not to harm you. These plans for your good and not for your ill as I bring about the end of the punishment of sin. I promise that when you seek me, you will find me. And here our Savior calls upon us to seek our Father in heaven with the great assurance that if we persist, He will be found not only are we called to ask and seek, but we're also called to knock. You know, I remember as a kid um, having a, a book that I got at the, if you remember those book buses that would come to the elementary schools as a kid and uh, for the book fair. And I remember getting a book as a collection of like the, the addresses you could write your favorite celebrities. And of course, one of my favorite movies as a kid was Back to the Future. So naturally, I wrote Michael J. Fox uh, and asked him if he would come to my birthday party. He still hasn't responded. <laughs> I'm still angry. I remember being in London a couple years ago, right before the pandemic, and walking to Buckingham Palace. All these people standing outside waiting for a sight of the Queen. Waiting to have some type of thing, or maybe the Queen could just wave to me. How many of us have sought some type of celebrity or some form of person in power? Maybe even just a conversation with your representative or senator. And it's so hard to have access to be granted a meeting with that person of note. There is no guaranteed response with them. And yet, how significant it is here that our Savior says, if you knock, it'll be opened. The Maker of heaven and earth has promised to grant time with you if you but knock. The great theologian in Princeton uh, professor, seminary professor Charles Hodge, who had, uh, I believe, at least six children, uh, a very busy man, yet had an open-door policy with his kids. Even as he was in his study, he never kept his door closed. Even if he had a meeting at the house, his kids were welcome to barge in at any point in time. I think one remembers, I think it was on the BBC a couple of years ago, made all these kind of social media things, uh, craze where there is a, BBC was doing, an, I think it was the BBC, an interview with a, uh, a, an economist uh, talking about, I believe it was kind of the, the economy in South Korea or something like that, and they were talking over Skype. Uh, and as this uh, notable economist is talking on this international news program. His child just kind of barges in the door 
just kind of starts walking up, and the, and the mother runs behind him trying to, to, to run in and grab the kid, and the father's so embarrassed, but everybody just loved it. But yet that is the very picture that our Savior gives to us this morning, that we are granted the great privilege to barge into the throne of grace. That is the repeated exhortation that we're given in the book of Hebrews. Let us come, not simply timidly, let us come boldly with great confidence to the throne of grace. Are you mourning your sin and in need of mercy? Then come boldly. Are you suffering and in need of grace and strength to persevere? Come boldly. Such is the great promise of our Savior, given here with the great assurance that we will not be shut out. Michael J. Fox may never respond to your letter. The King of England may never grant you a meeting with him. Your local senator or representative may never call you back. But your Father in heaven will never once turn you away. Savior says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. For I have chosen you, I have appointed you to bear fruit, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. By meditating on the words of our Savior, he trains us and so shapes our hearts to train us how to pray. With a great assurance, as Romans 8 tells us, that even when we don't know how to pray or what to pray, He's given us the Spirit who perfects our prayers so that whatever we ask in the name of Christ, our Father will, in fact, answer us. This is the confidence which we have before Him, John tells the church, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. There is no need for a Hail Mary when we pray, and I do mean that as a double entendre. Because Christ is our only mediator. To enter by the way of the mediator guarantees us court with the King of Heaven. Here we have an open door promise, an open door policy. Here is held up before us, as J.C. Ryle says, the broadest and fullest promise to those who pray. How simple our Savior's teaching, and yet how profound, and how it undercuts all the gimmicks that we are confronted with, even in kind of the Christian bookseller sphere and arena. You have a Father who loves you and calls you to come to Him. No need for bells and whistles. All that's needed is a mediator and that you come. And our Father has given you that mediator in the person of His Son freely, that whoever turns to Him will not be turned away. Such is the confidence that we have before Him. And now Jesus begins to lay hold and, and, and to, to give out this promise by presenting to us a particular analogy, speaking to us of our own earthly fathers. How many of us having fathers, giving us what we needed. Who is Jesus as we, even being fathers, giving to our children, we being evil. How much greater would our Father in heaven, who is not evil, give to us? How awful would it be to go to a restaurant and ask for a cheeseburger 
and in response be given one of those dreaded impossible burgers. How awful would it be to ask for a Coke and to be given a Pepsi instead? Let him with ears to hear, hear. And yet, this is the analogy our Savior gives, isn't it? How awful would it be to ask for a piece of bread and be given a stone instead? Or to, be, to ask for some fish and be given a serpent? And yet, isn't that the temptation to our hearts that we think, oh, I have to be very careful in what I ask the Father because He might, if I'm not careful, give me something awful. Nothing could be further from the truth. The God who is most good and most wise gives you all that you need for life and for godliness. He is far greater than you can ever imagine. Here, the analogy is how if your earthly father asks for those needs of your physical life, and now the argument is from the lesser to the greater. You being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, and you're not good people. How much greater God who is goodness itself will He give to you all that you need, not just for life, but also for godliness. Here, your Father in heaven, one in whom there is no turning shadow. Here is a God who does not deal in deceptive, manipulative practices. Here, He gives you all that you ask for, all that you need as He delights to answer your prayers more than you delight to have them answered. And so we should pray simply, persistently, and with hearts assured that He will answer our prayer in His goodness, in His wisdom, and in His good timing. Of course, that lends the question, for what should we ask? And might I suggest that there are five or six things here in this particular context that helps us to understand the very things that we should be asking for. You know, how many of us have heard sermons where people jump simply from this to asking for a new escalator for a bigger home. Those are not the things that we are called to ask for, yet there are good things that Christ calls us to ask for. You see this immediate context in those first seven verses as Jesus speaks of the difficulties that it had that we engage in dealing with those around us. We considered last week our own judgmental hearts, but also having to reckon with, as Jesus calls them, dogs and swine, those false teachers. It is so difficult to deal with our neighbors around us, and when to speak and when not to speak is such a difficult question. When should I address certain matters? When should I refrain from those things? Dealing with our neighbors is hard, and yet here, as soon as Jesus gives us, finishes giving us instruction on how to deal with those people and how to deal with our own hearts, what is the very next thing he talks about? Praying. Might I suggest this, that one of the things that Jesus is calling us to do is to pray for wisdom and how to deal with those around us. James chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask, Father in heaven who delights to bestow that heavenly wisdom that we might know how to deal with those around us. 
Yet that's not the only time our Savior has talked about prayer. You remember in Matthew chapter 6, the previous prayer, yet this part of this same extended sermon, Jesus has already given us particular things for which to pray. Those six petitions of the model prayer, praying for the Lord's glory and for His kingdom and for His will. As praying for our own food, for forgiveness, and for moral guidance. Moral guidance, I'm sorry. These things are the things that we pray according to His will. And we know that if we pray those things according to His will, He hears us. Yeah, that's not the only thing that our Savior's called us to ask for here in this passage. The end of chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom. Here Jesus reiterates, ask, seek, and knock. Ask for the kingdom. It's part of the Lord's Prayer, chapter 6, verse 10. Seek the kingdom, chapter 6, verse 33. Quote the old Bob Dylan song, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. You knock and it will be opened. There is the great promise. If we seek these things, they will be found. And yet we're reminded even in the openings of this sermon, the Beatitudes are given the promise of a balm for the bereft, comfort for the mourning, righteousness for the thirsty, rest for the weary, and mercy for sinners, that if we but come to our Father in heaven, He will provide us and bless us with all of those things. It's quite obvious, I think, that Jesus preaches this sermon in various iterations um, as He makes His way from town to town. Jesus is an itinerant preacher preaching the gospel of the kingdom, as Matthew 4.17 says. And here in chapters 5-7, to we're given a representation of what those sermons looked like. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus preaches a very similar sermon where he, in, in, in a parallel passage where he says, with, uh, in a different context, to ask, seek, and knock, and to pray for those good things. And if you pray, how will the Father not give you what? The Holy Spirit. Something He calls us to pray for as well. These are just a reflection, just even looking at these contexts and in the Gospels of the things that Jesus calls us to pray. And here, our Savior summarizes it, if you look there, in verse 11, calling them what? The good things. Ask for the good things. Here is a call for us to pursue that heavenly-mindedness, those heavenly treasures. Yes, the other things that we need for our earthly life will be thrown in, but here we have impressed upon us a call to pursue those heavenly manners, to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, to pray those prayers according to His will as our hearts are conformed to look like His Son in the blessings of the kingdom. And to know that as we engage and interact with those in this sinful world, our Father will give us all that we need, both in terms of moral guidance and in terms of strength, mercy, perseverance. Whatever good thing that is needed, He will not withhold His hand from you. He will give you all that is needed. Every blessing of the Spirit in heavenly places, as Paul tells us, in Ephesians 1. 
So this is the significance that we have before in this very simple passage, the promise of our Father's gracious answer as we but ask simply, persistently, with great assurance that our Father will answer us in His good pleasure according to His wisdom in His good time on the basis of His own bountiful goodness. Here is a God who will not deceive you. Here is not a God who will give you something subpar or substandard. Here is a God who will give you nothing less and nothing else but the cross of His Son. And as He conforms you to look like His Son, it is the greatest blessing you can ever hope to receive that though it might seem painful for a time, it is the means by which we come to know the resurrection power of our Son, of our Savior. That being conformed to His image in His sufferings, we might on that last day look like our Savior in glory. And so as we look and we pray and we, we struggle with the question of delayed answers to prayer, those delayed answers are not because our Father is unkind, but because He is most kind and that He is most wise, and that He answers in ways that are far better than we could ever imagine, even if we don't understand it. So the exhortation our Savior gives to us is the exhortation I put forward to my own heart this morning and to all of you this morning as well, that we pursue our Father in heaven and persist, knowing this, that if we but ask, He will but answer. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, we pray that You would seal upon our hearts uh, the knowledge of the goodness of our Father in Heaven, that You will give us the good things. And we pray that You would give us the good things, granted to us by Your Spirit and on the basis of Your mercy and grace. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.